Hello, world, and welcome back to the podcast, WVU Reads, where each week I choose a theme from this year's Campus Read, educated by Tara Westover, and invite an expert from around campus onto the show to help us think through that theme and so better understand Westover's fascinating book. Our guest today is Bob Bridges, curator of the WVU Art Museum and co-editor of the book Blanche Lazelle, The Life and Work of an American Modernist. Every year, Bob curates an exhibition for the Campus Read, using work from the museum's permanent collection. This year's exhibition, which is titled Constructing a Life, a Visual Response to Tara Westover's Educated, is now up on the second floor of Stewart Hall and open to anyone who wants to go see it. And I encourage you to do so. It's a fascinating show. Uh, Before I get to our conversation, though, I want to talk briefly about looking and reading. How are they alike? And how are they different? We all know what it's like to read a book. We start it. If it's any good, we finish it a week or a month or six months later. The experience is very linear with a beginning and an end. It starts when we first crack open the book and read the opening lines, and it ends at the final period when we shut the book, place it on the shelf among the other animals at the zoo, or give it to a friend, or bury it in the backyard, which would be weird, but no judgment. Pictures, looking at pictures, paintings, photographs, whatever, we're less familiar with that. How long should we stand or sit in front of it? When does the experience start? When does it end? And who's in charge? There is an openness, a wildness to looking at pictures, which I love. In a book, the writer is there holding our hand, leading us from page to page. But pictures, we're at sea. We're drifting through colors, shapes, associations. It's all present. There is no unfolding. So the two activities, reading, looking, seem at odds, really totally different from each other. But are they? Take reading. Is it really as linear and coherent as all that? Seems to me our experience of a book usually precedes our reading of the first words on the first page, in feelings of anticipation, dread, excitement, in the form of recommendations, blurbs, the image on the front cover, And often a book extends far past the moment when we read the last word and put the book down. In a sense, we never put a book down. That's why I like carrying books I'm reading with me, in a coat pocket preferably. They live in our minds and mix with our lives. Pictures, meanwhile, whether we see them in a museum or on a screen or a billboard, are more linear than they seem. After all, looking also takes place in time. The picture leads our eye from part to part. Sometimes pictures involve reading, as in Magritte's famous This Is Not a Pipe painting. Or are all reading, like the artist John Baldessari's What is Painting? And obviously books have images. Educated opens with a beautiful one. Westover writes, I'm standing on the red railway car that sits abandoned next to the barn. The wind soars, whipping my hair across my face and pushing a chill down the open neck of my shirt. The gales are strong this close to the mountain 
as if the peak itself is exhaling. Down below, the valley is peaceful, undisturbed, end quote. We see what Westover is showing us, the car, the barn, the windswept hair, the still valley. The words exist only to evoke the image. So I guess what I'm saying is just that when it comes to both reading and looking, all is not what it seems. So let's get to our interview. Thanks for coming on to the show. Sure. And for doing the exhibition at Stewart Hall. So in the opening, I described you as a curator, and that's your title. But what is a curator? Well, traditionally, the curator was known as the keeper of the collection. And so I am uh, responsible for taking care of all of the artwork in the university's art collection. Uh, That doesn't mean the physical, uh, but more the intellectual of the collection. And we have other members of our uh, art museum staff that would take care of the physical collection that handle the movement of the collection, as well as handle the education aspect Mm-hmm. of what we do with exhibitions mm-hmm. in the collection. So I'm responsible for um, looking at aspects of the collection, thinking about what would be a good addition to the collection, and also thinking about how I can share the collection with the wider audience, museum mm-hmm. audience. So that would be exhibitions mm-hmm. as well. So does that mean that if I were to go over to the museum, the work that's on display is not all the work that's in the collection. That's correct, yeah. We have up right now probably a, a little over 70 works in the McGee Gallery, all from the Harvey and Jennifer Payton collection that was a gift to mm-hmm. WVU. And um, But upstairs we have a storage facility temperature, humidity controlled, so mm-hmm. we're taking care of the work. And there's probably a, about 3,000 to 5,000 additional works. Wow. Yeah. And 70 on display and right. three to 5,000 mm-hmm. in storage. Yeah. That's a lot to keep, to keep track of. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we have a registrar, Karen, uh-huh. who has a database and all of it's tracked. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I love that. I love that title. The, the keeper of the collection. Um, that, that feels like a lot of responsibility. <laughs> How long have you been the keeper of the collection? Here? Well, uh, I was named the curator of the art museum uh, back in 2010 as we moved toward the opening of the art museum in 2015. But I have been a curator at WVU since July of 2000. Oh, Okay. And had you been a curator before you came here? Prior to coming here, I was a curator for a corporate art collection in Chicago, which was the originally was the first National Bank of Chicago, hmm. and eventually through mergers, uh, today is known as uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Hmm. I, th- I didn't even know banks had art collections. Yeah, a lot of corporations as investments do. or it's not uh, the one it, that I was involved with was not as an investment. And it was uh, as an asset to the employees. 
Hmm. So we installed artwork throughout the corporation, yeah, uh, worldwide too. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you were a little bit like you do with the campus read. You were having to think about. I mean, I guess you always have to think about the space and the audience. That you're looking to sort of match, right? Make the and, artwork match with. And a lot of times with the corporate collection, I would actually go and visit the area, look at the space, talk to the people who work there, talk about their interests, hmm. talk about their business, and I would learn particularly what they were doing, and then go back to the collection and try to figure out how to uh, come up with a piece that says what they're doing. That's so cool because then your your work then is getting art into people's lives. Right. Into Absolutely. their everyday lives. Absolutely. And that was one of the beauties of a corporate collection like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you must also, in, in your previous life as a, as a curator for a corporate collection, and but also at the university, think a lot about the value of an artwork, how artwork is priced. Because I imagine that's sort of mysterious to people. Also, sure. how does value get assigned to a specific work of art? Why is one thing more valuable than something else? Does that have to do with the materials or it's a, it's a complicated question yeah. but <laughs> but um a, a lot of times when people are very interested in how much something's worth, and a lot of times I will tell people the the educational value of this piece far outweighs its monetary value. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In other words, I'm not going to tell you what it's worth, but um, there are factors in in uh, assigning value to a piece. I'm not a licensed appraiser, but but there are you know things about the history of the artist, mm-hmm. um, how rare is the piece? Sometimes the materials used, sometimes the the phase in that artist's career. Um, how important was that? Were they saying something new? You know, just a lot of different yeah. aspects to uh, each work of art and why it would be valued in such a way. So yeah, and th- that's tangential, but I'm just, as someone who, you know, I've always loved art and, and I certainly love going to museums. As an, I'm just here, I'm, I'm picking your brain a little mm-hmm. bit on, on questions mm-hmm. that, are, sure. that are coming up. <laughs> I'm sure you've mounted a lot of exhibitions over the course of your career. And I'm curious, kind of, if maybe you could just tell us about a couple of them. And also, I'd be curious, like, if, if there is a sort of a narrative to that, like you, you, you find yourself mounting certain types of exhibitions, or does that make sense as, well, a, as a question? Yeah, and, and I think in the in best case scenario, it, it is that, you know, where my interests lie, I think, um, Mm -hmm. is where the curation comes from or the various exhibitions. But I'm also kind of beholden to the university Mm -hmm. and what the university represents. I'm also looking at the School of Art and Design and what they teach. Mm -hmm. Uh, The students are are, um, very active in coming to view the exhibitions. So I like to represent the various mediums in which they study uh, and try to be uh, cognizant of, of keeping a running tally of some of the various pieces we've seen. So, so it's um, not just always paintings right, or something. Exactly. There's sculpture and prints. prints and, okay. Right, right. Um, I do try to do that as well, but... Um, it, it's inevitable that, that a lot of uh, curators' personality is going to come through mm-hmm. in, in a given exhibit. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, moving off of that, sort of what kind of artwork you like, because you have a much bigger... I mean, you you know, you spend your you spent your life around images, and I imagine your tastes have changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also encountered a lot more artwork than most people have. Well, my background is a visual artist, so oh, okay. I don't come to the museum world and curating as an art historian. I come as a visual artist, so a lot of my responses to work and how I display the work is uh, visually related. Mm-hmm. Um, but my interests as a painter, fine artist, printmaker um, is a bit different than, than my taste as a curator. Oh, okay. And it's, it's a little more um, specialized, and it's about um, things that I am thinking about as a visual artist. And when I'm a curator, I'm thinking about bigger pictures of, um, you know, how... You know, I'm including uh, the bigger community of who's going to view this uh, collection and what they might gain from seeing uh, this exhibition. Mm-hmm. So you have to put your own taste aside. Sure. And, and I think it comes through, yeah. like I said before. But, uh, but I also think that, that it's, a, it's certain things that I don't necessarily have great interests in personally, mm-hmm. but are important to the art world or important to uh, getting a particular artist to a certain point. So it's important to show this work building up to that aspect of their career, mm-hmm. those types of things. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So you're, you're sort of, you're, 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 you're part of a, as a curator, as opposed to being an artist, you're sort of part of a community and you are responsible to that community. Yeah, I like to think that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, m- maybe we could talk about the Campus Read show yeah. because I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Maybe you could just tell us the pro—you know—the process by which you choose the images to use in the show, how those images might relate to the book, and um, okay, yeah. Well, I've been involved with the Campus Read. I think this is the third book that I've been involved with. And the first one I got involved with uh, was um, my son was coming, an uh, incoming freshman. And okay. so he was reading the book and telling me how much he liked it. And I started to read it and think about it. And then this discussion developed through the provost's office and uh, the humanities center about the campus read. And we had uh, an exhibition that had just kind of we used um, some of the permanent art collection from the museum just kind of to decorate up in. It wasn't really an exhibition. It was just a few of the highlights from the collection that were up there. And it was time to change that out anyway. So we, we actually um, started discussing the campus read and how that would work. And um, uh, just through some discussions with various people involved with the campus read, we kind of came up with the idea, and it's a very small exhibition. There's only really seven spaces for the works to go in. And currently, we have seven different works and seven different artists mm-hmm. involved. Okay, so that's a really helpful history of this relationship between the museum and the campus read. Uh, maybe you tell us a little bit about your process 
in selecting the images. Okay, one of the things that I set out to do from the very first was not illustrate the story, not act mm. as an illustrator saying, here's a picture, and this <laughs> is, you know, this particular part in the book. But, but more images that evoke ideas mm-hmm. that um, relate to some of the bigger themes within the, uh, within the book itself. And sometimes, though, you just come across an image that you think, Mm, it just works so well that I'm going to use it. And those tend to maybe look a little more illustrative. But for instance, in this exhibition, I'm using a print, a silkscreen on paper from Jenny Smith. It's called The Comics Reader. And it's a um, work in which a, a young girl is laying on the floor looking at a comic book. And, you know, to the viewer, they come in and see, okay, is this Tara Westover as a child discovering reading? Mm-hmm. And I'm using it in a way that talks about women having to develop uh, unconventional paths in their life to get where they want to be. And Jenny Schmidt was interested in comics. Mm-hmm. And it's a male-dominated world. So how does she negotiate that? And um, uh, so she's dealing with with these kind of underlying issues that you're not seeing on the surface. So through wall labeling, I let people kind of get a little inside glimpse into who the artist is and let them reflect on yeah. that. Yeah, that's and that theme that you're describing in which she has to come up with creative ways or creative uh, sort of alternative paths out of the world in which she's been given, in part for her because she's a woman. I think it's so important. We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet, but in a couple of weeks I think we will be talking about that. But I'm glad that the show raises that because I do think it's a very important element of the book. It's just sort of Westover's negotiating the patriarchy in, the, in, in a very, just in, 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 like you say, in creative ways. Um, so what, what are the other images? Do you want to tell us a little bit about the other works that are, that are on display? Sure. Um, I have... Several works that were our prints from different portfolios, and um, the themes of those portfolios. I had mentioned Jenny Schmidt uh, and comics is the theme of a portfolio, and she's in that with a guy by the name of Tim Dooley, and his piece is called "How to Make a Comic," and in that is a very abstracted, almost collage-like use of children's books cut apart and reassembled to sort of look figurative yet abstract. Hmm. And the idea with that was this, this notion of looking and what I'm asking the viewer to do. And it's also connected with Westover's life about patience and persistence and, and having to, to spend time with something in order to fully uh, understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's something we talked about last week with a, with a member of the uh, English department, this business about her having to read really difficult texts and have the patience to, that she couldn't understand at first and summon mm. the patience to, to come to an understanding of them. The other portfolio I worked with is called Doghead Stew. It's from hmm. 2003, and it was a celebration of Native American traditions and cultural 
uh, Persistence. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of artists. Uh, Kristen Furlong uh, has a silkscreen print in the exhibition called uh, Collecting Identities, obviously talking about uh, identities of Native Americans and the West, um, along with um, cultural traditions and artifacts. So you can see um, within that image, it's just silhouettes of things that um, represent Native American cultural objects, along with objects that represent an individual's identity, a female, there's a dress, and things that um, aren't necessarily associated with that, but they're all kind of laid out puzzle-like next to each hmm. other. And it, it's up to the viewer to kind of uh, sift through that information that's being provided and, and come up with your own take on, uh, on identity. The other is uh, Lynn Allen, and that's called the ABCs of Civilization. It's from 2003, and it's a lithograph. Now, what's a lithograph? A lithograph is a type of print that is um, done traditionally on a lithographic stone, which is limestone, and it's based without without giving a full um, uh, printmaking uh, lecture here. It's based on the idea that oil and water don't mix. So you draw with a greasy pencil crayon onto a lithographic limestone. It absorbs into it. You process it. You rub it with water, and then you ink up the stone, and the ink will only stick on the stone where there's greasy Hmm. drawing on it. And, And once it gets fully inked, then you can put a piece of paper on it, run it through the press, and the ink transfers. But the idea is the, the, the water that you're putting on the surface of it keeps the ink from forming on any other area of the stone. It was developed about 250 years ago. Uh-huh. I was going to say, it sounds like it would be 2,000 years ago. <laughs> but an it's, ancient ritual. Right, right. It's still in process, but nowadays they've developed uh, aluminum plates that act the same I way. And, huh. and, um, but printmaking departments, artists still use the stones. It's the commercial printers that have um, most of their stones have ended up in some print shops uh, across the country. Uh, universities end up uh, the recipients of these very nice uh, Bavarian limestones that the okay. students can use. Huh. Uh, so you were telling us about, I interrupted, you were telling no, okay. us about Lynn Allen's uh, lithograph. Right, Lynn, Lynn Allen um, is doing this print that, that uh, the left side of the print sort of resembles uh, uh, 19th century, early 20th century slate in which a child would do the ABCs and um, she, uh, practicing letters. And, um, and then on the other side, she shows um, more of the Native uh, Americans and, and um, kind of the text goes along with that tradition and how uh, Native Americans dealt with the uh, European immigrants that came to this country. So um, it's, it's uh, Alan was, was talking about uh, her background um, in South Dakota and her native ancestry and what she thinks about when doing that. But it, it, in a bigger picture, both of them talk about um, uh, identity and how we see ourselves and, and how others see us. Mm-hmm. And it, would it be fair 
to say that there are also those, particularly that, that, that lithograph that you were just describing, are images of the West, like the frontier a little bit, or sort of the, the, these meetings of settlers and white settlers and native peoples. Right. Because, I, I, again, it's not something we've talked about with the book, or that I've had a chance to talk about with the book, um, but it is a sort of a Western story. I mean, she grows up in the West, in the mountains, and her family, you know, their, their, their lifestyle, you know, sort of anti-government lifestyle is a sort of a, there's a cowboy thing about it, you know, mm-hmm. sort of that, mm-hmm. that, uh, those ideas of freedom right. from civilization. Right. And, and some of the ideas that, well, you, you read a quote from the book. It, it was this visual representation of the West I was getting in my mind and, mm-hmm. and thinking about these things. And, and rather than, like I said, illustrate it with a Western scene of mountains, you know, I was right. thinking about more about ideas and yeah. bigger picture um, thoughts that that uh, our, the viewer can relate to in some way. Yeah, yeah, and that can give us a new relationship to the book for those of us who have read it to go see the show and then go back to the book and think about it in new ways, Hope, hopefully. having looked at these images. Right. I mean, I am already, yeah. you know, just from hearing you t- describe them. Well, good. Any other ones? Let's just go through the list. Well, um, one of the things that I was interested in doing, of course, is also connecting it back to the students themselves, campus. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a pair of works um, together by the artist uh, Grace Martin-Taylor, who was a graduate of WVU in 1927. Okay. And then her mentor, uh, Blanche Lazelle, who was a graduate of the university in 1905. And both of the images are of Emore Hall. Hmm. Um, one is from 1925, and then the other is from 1934. And the interesting thing about that, even though Lazelle was Taylor's mentor, that the image that Grace Martin Taylor created in 25. Uh, was nine years earlier than Lazelle's. So I was interested, without um, talking to the artists or knowing what had happened, how the, the mentor had kind of looked at the, the other's work and said, oh, that's an interesting image. I think I'll do a version of that also. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a nice pairing, and I think it connects students um, back to the campus, back to themselves, back to West Virginia, and they can think about the, that, you know, these are artists working back, you know, quite a few years ago, yet this uh, building is right across the street from Stewart Hall, mm-hmm. and they can walk out the door and see the same sycamore tree that's depicted in the print and and depicted or and, and then it's right in front of their eyes the centennial right. tree there right and hopefully see it with fresh eyes sure because this campus is very beautiful um, but it's easy to forget that right right and Blanche Lazelle so she was from Morgantown is that right she was born in Maidsville okay um, but her family from West extended Virginia family right which is six miles up the Mon River from us. Um, but her extended family uh, had homes in Morgantown. Now, she never owned a home, but she would stay with uh, her family members when she'd come back here. And then she would rent uh, 
studio space as well as uh, living quarters in Provincetown, okay. uh, Massachusetts. So, so she the, lived in Provincetown, Massachusetts. For, right. For most of her professional career, she lived up there. Because that, too, has a sort of a resonance with educated. Blanche Lozell's story, and I'm thinking about it because there's this image that would have been very familiar to her, but that she does later in her life. It sounds like after she had left West Virginia, because Westover is, you know, she leaves and she can never go back, but she's always going back in her mind. She's so attached to that place. Sure. And that sounds sure. like something that this painter is experiencing. Absolutely. That's a really good, good point because uh, Lizelle did return. She loved the state and she would actually do images while she was, you know, there on the ocean <laughs> in Provincetown of the hills of West Virginia, uh-huh. you know, thinking about it. Um, she would come back uh, to visit and sell work back here, occasionally some of her prints. And um, so she would, she would do seascapes, uh, city townscapes of Provincetown, townscapes of West Virginia, and, you know, kind of go back and forth between those and the still life. That was her main main thing where she was able to kind of use her ideas about abstraction and bring them full circle with the use of planes within flower petals mm-hmm. and uh, the tabletop situation. And do we see in this in the work that's in Stuart Hall, do we see that kind of modernist? It's it's both of them are stuff. definitely have a modernist approach to them. Okay. They're less abstracted than uh, their later works or actually in Lozell's case, She's revisiting uh, sort of a realism because this uh, drawing was done for the Public Works of Art project in 1934. So there was a sort of a government mandate to try to depict local scenes of importance. Yeah. And she knew this was going to be sort of uh, presented as a representation of Morgantown or West Virginia. She was one of the only... uh, artists selected to represent the state. Okay. And so she wanted to make sure that the government was happy with it because she wanted to continue to work for them. Yeah. So it's in a sort of social realist right. tradition but, a little bit. But she just can't help um, hmm. show some of her ideas of modernism within the work, too. Yeah. Um, and is there anything else? That you want to, and any other works that well, uh, you want to introduce us to? There's just, I think I've covered all of them. There's just uh, one other artist in the exhibition, and that's uh, Jiri Anderlei, who's a Czechoslovakian artist, uh, just a really incredibly talented draftsman. And what I've selected is a dry point and mezzotint, so I know you're going to ask me what that I is. I would love to know <laughs> what that is, yeah. That That is... Um, it's actually, instead of a stone in lithography, you're using a copper plate. So this is like an etching. And a dry point is where you're taking a sharp object and drawing directly into copper. You're not using anything other than just scratching copper and letting the, the raised line as well as the, uh, the groove you're creating catch the ink. So it's a fuzzy uh, okay. black line uh-huh. because of that. Uh, and the mezzotint is uh, using a tool called a mezzotint rocker, and you rock that 
back and forth, and that tool makes a little tooth in the um, plate itself. And artists continue to rock it back and forth in all directions, and eventually the tooth is such that, that when you apply ink to the surface, it's going to be black. Hmm. So then to create a mezzotin, artists then go back in and smooth out the tooth, which they're basically drawing into black. So this, um, the, the, instead of a black line, you have kind of the, the light area arising out of the black. Okay. It's, it's hard to explain. Uh, I mean, I'm always, I'm it, always but. fascinated. I think I'm envious because I'm a writer. I write poetry. And so I don't really have materials. I just have like a pencil <laughs> and a piece of paper. And artists get to use stone and copper and precious, you know, metals and oil paint. Right. And it smells and it feels. <laughs> and, so. and, I, and I think artists all want to go back to just a piece of paper oh, and a yeah. pencil, too. <laughs> Not to have to uh-huh. fool with all the difficulties right. of doing that. So this this Czechoslovakian ours this is a contemporary drawing or what's the date on it? Yes, the date is from seventy eight. Okay, and we have a, a variety of his work. They were donated by the Maceros. Doctors uh, Paul and Laura Maceros made the donation to the collection back in the nineties, and we have about twelve to fifteen of his works, and they're just uh, really amazing works. But, but this particular piece, I thought it was really good because it shows, uh, it's a portrait of his wife, but it shows her in multiple views all at once. Hmm. And she doesn't have the exact same expression on her face. Uh, so she kind of goes through some emotions as you're looking at these tiny little slices of her face. Okay. And uh, once again, hard to explain on the verbally, but uh, something that I encourage people to, to come out and look at. And, and really what, what these multiple views are presenting is this composition of beauty and pain and the persistence of the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those were things that you had, you had sort of found at reading... Westover's book. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm really excited to see the show, and I hope that a lot of people will find the time to go up there. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA, and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. Copyright 2019.